This is CX of M Radio, the voice of customer experience professionals. another world of ux podcast this is your host darren hood thanks everybody for taking the time to join us on today a special welcome to those of you joining us for the first time uh and we're gonna dive right in today we're going to have another potpourri session on today what is potpourri potpourri is when we talk about a little bit of everything there are certain topics that have come up questions that i get either via one of our meetups uh and by the way this week on thursday uh, is our next UX Chit Chat Hour, or Friday, I'm sorry. Uh, we have switched to Fridays. So the UX Chit Chat Hour will be on Friday, 12, 15 Eastern time. Uh, check out the link. Uh, you'll find it if you look at my Twitter feed or if you look up the invitation or the event on LinkedIn, you will find it. Feel free to come on out and talk with UXers from all over the world about pretty much some of any and everything. It's important for us to meet up. It's therapeutic. It's enriching. It's enlightening. Uh, if you really want to grow and you really want to connect with quality uh, individuals, I highly recommend coming to the UX Chit Chat Hour. Uh, misinformation has been uh, a big problem in UX over the course of the last 10 years or so, 10 to 12 years, actually. And, and that is going to be something your exposure to misinformation is going to be dependent upon who you connect with. Uh, there are a lot of people, and that's going to lead us into our first topic of the day. The the top, the content will never be any greater, no more trustworthy than the personal UX maturity of the person who's sharing it. There are people out there, I was talking to somebody earlier just today about the misinformation and, and how broad it is. And I always tell the story about, and was telling that individuals yesterday, actually, was uh, telling that individual about someone who was on, on Instagram presenting themselves as a mentor for UX. And they had a whopping three months or so of experience. And that wasn't really even experience. So you are what you eat. Tapping into a recent post that I had on, on LinkedIn and on Twitter, you are what you eat. You are what you partake of. And, and if you if you eat quality things, then you're going to have quality health levels. If you eat junk, if you try to live off of hot fudge, ice cream cakes and and, and Twinkies and, and, and your favorite candy, uh, then that is going to detrimentally impact you on a personal and a physical level. And it's going to lower your trajectory of where you're going to be able to go. So using that metaphor, we are what we eat. So we want to make sure that we partake of quality content. However, when someone is new to UX, they don't have a filter. That is just like someone who's just been born into the world. Kids don't have filters. They'll put anything in their mouths. And you're calling us kids. Somebody will say, listen to the metaphor. It's not personal, but it is true. And you've seen it. You see kids, they put anything in their mouth from a screw to a coin to one of their toys. None of those things are edible. None of those things make any sense. 
Uh, they didn't used to have childproof locks on things or caps on things when I was a kid. Now they do. They have childproof caps on prescription medication. They have childproof caps on Drano. Uh, and they have to do that because kids don't know that they're not supposed to put those things in their mouths or drink them or eat them. The same thing, whether folks like it or not, the truth of the matter is that when we first come into UX, we have no idea or any other discipline for that matter. We have no idea what we should and shouldn't partake of. We have no idea what is or is not good for us. And, and what's sort of sad about it today, or most sad, I should say, is that there was no misinformation in UX prior to about 2011, 2011, 2012. You could pretty much pick up any book, partake of any resource, and it would help grow you in some way, form, or fashion. Today, it is the opposite. So all those things said, as I sort of lay a foundation for one of the three things that we're going to cover today, there was a post that was brought to my attention. Again, this is not personal, and, and this is going to uh, topics one and three are going to go together today. We're going to skip one and get into something else there. But all three of these are actually related. The more I look at them today, so, uh, there was a post that came to my attention. And in the post, the person said, when it comes to user experience design, it's easy to focus solely on the visual design of a product or website. However, the importance of content and UX design cannot be overlooked. And we will stop there. Uh, this is not out of context. This is exactly what the person said. I want to make sure to clarify that. And the person makes this statement, and we're going to do we're going to do something that that our uh, one of our our major peers, Debbie Levitt, does on Friday. She does a critical thinking piece where they actually take posts and things that people say and they review them step by step. They Break the thing down from a critical thinking perspective to see uh, what's actionable, what's useful, uh, things of that nature. She wants to identify the people who attend those sessions. They want to identify whether or not something is quality. They're actually applying a filter to see what a person should or shouldn't should or should not partake of. What's dangerous? What's beneficial? We need to know and understand that. Now, that's in order to control your trajectory and make sure that it's optimal. If you partake of any and everything, you're going to be a hodgepodge uh, of what you could be. And you're automatically, your trajectory automatically becomes lower. We cannot partake of things that are not in our best interest. We cannot partake of things that are not accurate. We cannot partake of things that are not trustworthy. So let's take these two statements and then we'll, we'll get to the point we're trying to make here. When the person says, when it comes to UX design, it's easy to focus solely on the visual design of a product or website. Uh, I am going to take that and just flat out shoot it down. If a person jumps straight from the beginning of a project straight to visuals, that person is either not doing UX design at all. They're doing UI work. That they jump straight to the UI, you're a UI person, and that's what you do, that's what you do. But if you are professing to be, claiming to be, a saying to be, it's your goal to be a user experience professional, we do not jump. Not, not only do we not jump straight to the visuals, but you we're we're omitting a lot of critical things here. Let me let me refresh some people's mem uh, memories 
and introduce to others Jesse James Garrett's Five Planes illustration. You can go to images.google.com and you can type in JJG Five Planes and you will find there are several different renditions of it, but there's one main one. And the main one on the left side, it says web as software interface. On the right side, it says web as a hypertext system. But the important part is that he lists five planes and he shows how design is done, how you go from conception to completion or how you go from abstract to concrete. Now, in each one of these pathways that Jesse James Garrett presents, the bottom, the first plane is where you identify user needs or site objectives. On the second plane, you identify either functional specifications or content requirements. Basically, they're equivalent, whether it's a software interface, SaaS, or web, a website, so to speak. And this applies, it doesn't matter what you're designing, it, it, the same thing is gonna apply. Then you get into interaction design and information architecture on the third plane. On the fourth plane, you get into interface design, navigation design, information design, how to make sure that you're facilitating access to the information the right way and that the interface facilitates access to that information. The fifth and the final plane, do you hear me today? The fifth and the final plane is visual design. So if a person, when it comes to UX design, if a person focuses solely, the person said that wrote this says it's easy to focus. No, it's not. No, it's not. You have to jump over all four of those planes, whether you know the five planes or not. This is the way to proceed. And, and if you've ever heard my talk, for those of you, you already know this. If you heard my talk called design processes are overrated, you understand that all processes are essentially the same. With, with different names, different different terms used to describe the different levels or the different stages of a design. The last one is always the visual part. We do visuals last. UX designers do. UX de UI designers jump straight to the visual because they either don't care about everything else or they're not responsible for everything else. And that's not wrong. If that's what they're doing, that's what they're doing. If they're responsible for UI, if that's the way they iterate, that they want to go visual and then you double back, it's not very optimal. You're, you're eliminating the users. You're eliminating information architecture. You're eliminating content requirements. You're, inter, you're eliminating interaction design. Can you see how sensible what Jesse James Garrett said is? How that's what we should be doing? And we know we all know people that go straight to visual design. It's counterproductive and you end up redoing stuff over and over and over again. And don't use don't use agile to cover up the fact and say you're iterating. It, it's not the right way to proceed because you're eliminating all the things you should do in order to do design the right way, especially from a user perspective, because the user needs the site objective. And I would say and add to this business needs are a part of that, too. He said site objectives, but you could say that that's really business needs. Those things have to be done, and those things inform the visual design. <laughs> you can't just slap a visual design on it without understanding what the architecture is going to be. So when the person said it's easy to focus solely, easy for who would be my question from a critical thinking standpoint. It, not only is it not easy to focus solely on the visual design, if you are responsible if you are accountable, if you are professional, 
uh, you are going to do the other things first. So that statement, and I, it really sorrowed me to see people connected with me liking something like that because it's wrong. And, and so when you partake of something is wrong, would you eat spoiled meat? Would you eat a spoiled, would you drink spoiled milk? Would you regularly partake of things where the expiration date is well past three, four, and five years? Because that's the equivalent. When we need to be more selective, folks. We need to be selective about what we partake of. And we'll get to that a little bit as we proceed here. But please, please, please understand that the only people jumping straight to visual design, they're not UX designers. I don't care what their title is. Your title doesn't necessarily describe who you are. HR is required to give you a title. And HR doesn't know anything about UX. So they they're, they quickly and easily, they hand out, as I told somebody recently, that they hand out titles at companies now uh, as easily as balloons get handed out at a, at, a, at a baby's birthday party. So no, they just give it out with no thought, no consideration. And, and, and we over here, however, UX is the voice of reason. How can we be functioning as UX people when we don't have a voice of reason for our own personal operation. So we got to be better at that. That post, no, huge thumbs down. Uh, we cannot approve of that. We cannot embrace it. Uh, and and I'm just going to, no, 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 a thousand times, no. And, and I will say something else about this before we move on to topic number two. There are a lot of people that misinformation I talked about that didn't exist prior to 2011. A lot of times the misinformation exists because there are a lot of people that are more interested in being heard than they are at providing quality content. Somebody is out there saying, you know, you need to, if you want to get hired, you need to put yourselves out there. Nobody's going to look at your, your social media to see whether or not you're putting yourself out there to make a decision whether or not to hire you. And the people who are giving that advice they don't have a track record on. So, I mean, people, we, we've got to be more selective. People just want to be heard and they'll say anything. They don't care how inaccurate it is. They don't care how void of value it is. They just want to be heard. They want to count the number of followers they have. They want to focus on the volume of what they're doing, the quantity, but they're not really focused on the quality. We, we talk about what we do, but how much impact have you really had? True impact and not somebody saying you impacted them. Actual impact because some of the people saying that they've been impacted, they don't even know how to gauge impact. They, they don't even know. So, if we're going to help UX to go to the next level, if we're going to help foster and facilitate the health of this discipline, we got to stop eating everything that's not nailed down to the table, so to speak. We've got to be more selective. So, that's it for. Topic number one on today. Uh, number two, and, and it's related. Uh, I was talking to somebody, and I've, I got to say, I absolutely love, I just started a new job recently. And, and this is a side note. I love working with smart people. And part of the reason, part of the reason I feel this way is because there's a lot of, in UX today, there is a ton of inferiority complexes. At work, we always talk about a lack of EQ. I've done a series on it here on this show. When you work with smart people, 
truly smart people who are confident about who they are and the direction they're headed and where they want to go. They're not threatened by other smart people. Game knows game. Game recognizes game is the actual saying, the way that that saying goes. And so someone that brings a lot to the table when someone else that brings a lot to the table comes onto the scene, they're not threatened by the new person. And so we can engage in fruitful relationships. I just want to give a shout out to those folks. And, and, and I was having a discussion with somebody and they were asking me about personal UX maturity or about UX maturity as, actually as a whole. We, we talked about personal UX maturity too, but they were act, asking me about um, managing UX mater, maturity specifically. And, and so I thought, you know what, I should talk about this on the show because there are other people who have the same question. So I'm borrowing from that conversation just to present this topic today that, and, and so the actual question is, how do you start when it comes to managing UX maturity? It, it, it's on a lot of people's radars now where UX maturity was not, and a lot is just an improvement. It doesn't mean that is dominant. There, there are not a lot of people that are focusing on UX maturity. And when that happens, UX maturity is left to manage itself, which is not a good proposition, which means you're automatically on the downward trajectory. It has to be deliberately managed today. And just as we talked about a few moments ago, you have to be very concerned. You have to have a filter because when you when there's uh, information about UX maturity on the web, on social media, what have you, that doesn't mean that that information is accurate. And even, and I hate to say it, Nielsen Normer Group was one of the first organizations that produced a UX maturity level uh, grid or set of guidelines, if you will, identifying the different stages of UX maturity. And there were about eight different levels. And it started with hostility towards UX, which a lot of companies are still at today. A lot of companies are still hostile toward UX. The individuals in the company, leaders in the company, people are still hostile toward UX. And we won't get into that in detail today. The thing is that in order to start managing UX maturity, you first must recognize where you are. And I'll finish my NNG comment in a moment. You have to recognize where you are. And, and in order to recognize where you are, it's good to look up the different UX maturity level models that are out there. Look and see which one seems to best suit your organization. And, and you can always change it later. But the starting point to, to have a model and then say, you know what, we're going to look at this one and, and let's truthfully from a very raw perspective, just, oh my God, you, you really got to be so blatantly honest to the point that you are, and you know, you're not blatantly honest if you're not willing to look at your own faults and nod your head and say, yes, that's me. If you're not willing, which a lot of people are not willing to do today, if you're not willing to acknowledge where you have a fault, you are not going to be able to grow in the area that you fail to acknowledge. So please know, understand, and keep that in mind today. As you go out, here comes the NNG comment. As you go out and look, you're going to come across, more than likely, the NNG model. Uh, as a matter of fact, just give you, uh, uh, if, if you, some of you know, hey, where can I start? Man, how do you look these things up? If you go to slideshare.net 
and look up Darren Hood UX Maturity, you're going to find a talk that I delivered at Michigan, Michigan State University about five years ago about UX maturity levels. It's called UX maturity levels and you. And in it, I cover not only, I believe it's five different UX maturity level models. And I also give you a breakdown of the pros and cons and things of that nature with regard to each one of them, things of that nature. You, you, you'll see it when you look it up. And in there, you will see the first UX maturity level model that was produced by Nielsen Norma Group. It was phenomenal. The problem with it back then was that something that wasn't really done by other organizations who produced UX maturity models, maturity level models was that not only did he provide the, the different levels, he also talked about how long it should take on average to move from one to another. And that's something else you got to watch out for uh, or be aware of, I should say. When you're trying to look at UX maturity level models, a good UX maturity level model is it has like a sort of a, a stepladder type of a structure to it where there are five, six, seven, eight, nine different levels. It varies depending upon which model you're looking at. And you always have to meet the qualifications of one before you move to another. And so it gives you something to shoot for. It helps you to identify where you are and it helps you really set goals for where you want to be. And you should, when you see where you are and where you want to be, that should help you to establish a strategy to help you not only ascend from one level to another, but help you to manage because you don't just achieve a high level of UX maturity and then do nothing and stay there, you'll start to downgrade. Like the company I talked about before that hired an architect to run their UX department. Again, not an information architect, not a UX architect, a building architect to run their UX department. And that company's UX maturity took a nosedive. The quality of their products took a nosedive. And that's how things, the domino effect comes into play that it starts with the team then 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 the the organization starts to suffer the users start to suffer uh flip that one around you want to stay on top of these things they don't manage themselves which is another reason why you got to have real seniors not fabricated seniors not seniors who have one two and three years of experience you can't be a senior so you're practicing for at least seven eight years and i've seen people have been practicing ux for seven eight years that aren't senior they still aren't seniors because they don't have a commitment to growing. They don't have a, a commitment to managing their own personal UX maturity. So folks, please keep in mind, you are not what your organization says you are necessarily. Maybe, maybe not. And in many cases, people today, they just give out titles like, you know, like they're giving out uh, uh, food at a soup kitchen or something. It, it's, it's not wise, it's not accurate, and it's being done to the detriment of the discipline. So. How do you start again to manage UX maturity? You need to identify where you are. You need to look at the different models out there and pick them. Pick one that matches your organization. Establish a strategy and you can go from there. Now, to wrap up the NNG thing, which I sort of diverted myself from and didn't complete. If you look at the old um, NNG UX maturity level model that you'll find in the deck that I referred to you on slideshare.net, you will find, and look at the one today, because they updated it. They removed 
certain things from that model. And the things that they removed from that model are to the detriment of an organization's ability to understand where they are. They removed, in particular, the, that lowest level that said hostility towards UX. A lot of organizations are still hostile. And so if they remove that, those people are trying to be politically correct. You can't be politically correct and thrive in UX. You simply can't. So they, they remove that level. Now, if your organization is hostile, where do you place yourself? They removed it. So the old NNG maturity level is good. The part about the, I don't think I finished talking about this, but the part about how long it takes to go from one level to another is what used to scare people because that old Nielsen Norman Group UX maturity level model said that it would take 40 years to reach the highest level of UX maturity. Um, I'd say that's not accurate. It may have been accurate in the past. I, I tend to think that it is not accurate. It depends on how you manage it. It depends on what you do. You're not going to get there in two years. You're not going to get there in three years. You might not get there in five, six, seven, or eight years. But you need to stay on that trajectory, which which communicates the fact that managing UX maturity, it must be deliberate. And it's going to take some time. It's going to take some expertise. And you're not going to get there if nobody on your team has any a high level of personal UX maturity. You're not going to get to those levels. They can't manage themselves. They can't manage the organization. They can't manage leaders. They can't manage. They, they just can't be done. And people keep trying to get uh, or reach high levels of UX maturity operation with people on the team that have low levels of personal UX maturity. You got to start hiring higher skilled people and stop running us off because that's what companies do on average. They want nothing to do for whatever reason might be. They want nothing to do with, with highly skilled UX practitioners. They're willing to pay less and go with less less, uh, less experienced people. But don't forget, it, the, the, the principles that have been presented state that for every dollar you invest, and I'll use the lower end uh, spectrum uh, principle on this one. It, for every dollar you invest in UX, you gain $100 up to anywhere from $10 to $100 in return. But I'm going to throw a caveat in there. You only achieve that ROI if you hire the right people. If you hire people who are posers, retrofits, upstarts, if you have people running your UX operations that don't know or understand or have an appetite for UX, not only do you not see the $10, it will actually cost your company. It actually goes in the opposite direction. So let's keep that in mind today. If you really want to achieve UX maturity, proper levels in your organization, you got to do things the right way. You can't willy-nilly this thing. You can't play with it. You can't scale it down. You can't hide. You can't do the ostrich effect bias thing. And you can't engage in toxic positivity and achieve proper levels of UX maturity. You stay on the lower end of the spectrum down there with the hostility, down there with skunk works. That's when the skunk, skunk works is when the, when the developers are calling the shots. So that, that's what that is. So, so let's keep that in mind today. The final topic we're going to cover today involves the importance of peer reviews. The importance of peer reviews. And I said all these, all three of these things tie in together today, big time, in that 
that first post that I talked about, no, people aren't, don't do this, but I'm just trying to make a point. People don't allow, on average, they do in some cases, but when it comes to individuals posting content, it's not going to happen. Where they're going to, hey, will you take a look at this post before I put it out? It's not going to happen. But peer, and so because of that, misinformation is all over the place because there's stuff that had an actual qualified peer seen it. They would say, you know what? You shouldn't say this. Or I know what you're trying to say, but the way you said it, this is how it's going to come across. Uh, this is what's going to happen. This is the problem that's going to result from that. That's what would happen if there was a peer review process that was set up for individuals who are trying to get social media posts out there. But again, not going to happen today. But peer reviews are important. We do it in our UX work. We do something and sometimes you're either too close to it. And so you don't see certain things or there might be a bias that you haven't roped in that need to be controlled. And somebody else needs to look at your work so that they can provide input. So the end of the at the end of the day, you have greater quality. This is what we're going after uh, in academics. Peer review, especially at the doctoral phase. Peer review is an absolute necessity. And the value of peer review is is just fantastic at that level. Uh, some of you have heard about peer reviewed papers when I'm in my doctoral phase. Now I am I'm a doctoral candidate and and my work will go nowhere if the peers that review my work don't approve it. It goes nowhere. So you present not peer review is not just to have any Joe Blow that's on standby to look at it. That's not peer review. That's somebody going through the motions. Peer review means that a person who has a, a level of expertise that has the ability to gauge the value, the authenticity, the trustworthiness, and the accuracy of what you're presenting, they review it. They have to approve it. So in peer-reviewed scenarios, doc, the doctoral phase, PhD phase is one of them. Somebody else looks at your work. They give you feedback. Your work will not get approved to go to the next level or be published until you please those people. We need to embrace peer review to some extent. And, and, and part of what I wanted to get at was that with this is that everything gets peer reviewed, whether it's solicited, desired or not. As soon as somebody puts something out there for everybody to see, somebody that knows, somebody that meets the qualifications that I just mentioned is going to see that content. They're going to see that medium post. They're going to see that, that tweet. They're going to see that LinkedIn post. They're going to see that talk at that conference, whatever it is. Somebody who is qualified to evaluate and provide feedback on that content is going to look at it, partake of it, and chime in. And when I talk about the importance of peer review, you can really say that I'm focusing on folks having the ability to accept it. Because you're going to be, if you don't, you don't ask for peer review, but you're going to get it anyway. When you get it, how will you respond? And that that is a personal UX maturity level issue. It is an emotional intelligence issue because somebody can post something like those silly, which design do you like better, A or B posts that I'm so glad that they finally toned down. You very rarely see them anymore at all on LinkedIn. But that's because so many of us started blasting the people 
because, and I mean blast, because it, you, there's no context here. We would tell them when I say blast, I'm using that word loosely and that we would say, hey, there's no context here. We can't really evaluate this. Um, you're just showing this from a visual design perspective. And, but you said that, it, and, and then another, in another instance, we would say, hey, you're saying that you're doing research by asking us this. This is not research. Somebody said, well, this is an A-B test. No, it's not. It's a preference test. It's a bias test. That's not A-B. Who's using the design? Nobody. Since when do A-B designs only, only include visual representations? They don't. A, 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 an A-B test in the UX world means that we need to engage with the designs. We need to try to perform the task that is a part of the design, that, that the design is representing. And because so many people, and that's one of the reasons why this whole UI UX thing is so convoluted is because a lot of people who are really UI people want to be UX people. So they just throw the acronym in there and they're just doing UI work. With all of those people, which design do you like better? That's a, that's a visual design thing from the perspective they're presenting it. It's not a UX thing. If it doesn't involve the four preceding planes, it's not UX. I repeat, if somebody, what I said earlier in this, in this episode, if the design that you're trying to get evaluated, if that evaluation does not include things that happen at the first four levels of the design process, it is only a UI engagement. So it's not UX and there is no UI UX. So folks need to stop that. <laughs> and the only thing that we do on the UX side from a UX perspective is make sure that it's reflective of all the UX stuff that we gathered in the first four phases and then tack on top of that, making sure it's accessible and things of that nature. But we, we don't have the interest in pretty. That's not our interest. Our interest is work. Let the visual folks look at it, make sure that it looks good. We want it to look good. There's emotional design impact. We have a horse in that race. But that's not that's not where we live. And, and so folks need to understand that either you're going to be a UX person or a UI person. And, and what you put your emphasis on, where you put your investment, that says who you are. So accept who you are. If you want to be a UX, you're fine. We welcome you. But make sure that you are accountable to the principles at work here. And remember, UI. Oh, my God. UI is old. UX only 20, roughly 20 to 25 years old. So, but UI has been around then for centuries. So, so let's keep that in mind, please. And remember, you can't even pull off a UI without having interaction design principles, which is at level three of Jesse James Garrett's five planes. So, so let's keep that in mind. There is a, as soon as somebody's going to interface with it, then you've got to have the interaction design principles in place. So let's keep that in mind. But again, peer review, you're either going to solicit actual peer review, the right people, please. <laughs> you gotta, you gotta, you're gonna engage in peer review. If you don't, there's gonna be peer review anyway. And you gotta be mostly intelligent to embrace all of the feedback that comes your way. And when you accept that feedback, the constructive feedback, not the destructive feedback, the constructive, the qualified feedback that's willing to tell you, not trying to, to pat you on the back and make you feel good, but actually letting you know what's going on, where you need to improve, where something doesn't meet the standards that we should be trying to meet to optimize designs. 
Now you're talking real peer review. And when you listen to peer review, which is constructive, you listen to it and you apply it. It takes your initiatives. It takes your content. It takes your designs to another level at which everybody is happy. So let's make sure we understand what peer review is today and understand and embrace the importance of peer review. All right, folks, that's it. Those are the three topics for this Popeye recession. We hope you got a lot out of this on today. Don't forget, uh, for those of you listening to the podcast this week, our next UX Chit Chat Hour is on Friday. Let's see, that's 22nd, 23rd, 24th, Friday, February 24th at 12.15 p.m. Eastern Time. Uh, you'll find the link on LinkedIn. Just look up UX Chit Chat Hour. I'm sure you'll find it for February 2023. Hope to see you there. It is a free event. Come and talk to UXers from all over the world and get some really sound, viable, and quality content and directives. But that is it for today. We are out of time, so we're going to sign off here. This is Darren Hood, the host of the World of UX, signing off. Happy UXing, everybody. Thanks for joining us for this session of CX of M Radio. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and visit cxofm.org for more resources.